0: Simple Beep, episode 57, Colorful Apple Products. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm
1: Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And uh, before we get to the main topic of this episode, as always, we have a little bit of follow-up. Starting with our previous episode uh, behind the show, we talked about uh, some of the emulation solutions we use to get classic Mac software running on modern machines. And we mentioned Basilisk and Sheepshaver, but a uh, former guest and friend of the show Thomas Brand tweeted us to remind us that there's a third emulator out there, Mini vMac. And it's kind of interesting because we had follow up in our previous episode about another emulator for a specific uh, early range of Newton hardware, the Leibniz emulator. And Mini vMac is kind of like that for Mac models. I think the first build of Mini vMac was meant specifically to emulate the Macintosh Plus, and I think that's still what it aims for, but it can also accept ROMs from uh, similarly early hardware. So if you're into a more (laughs) discrete solution that specifically tackles machines that can run nothing higher than System 7.5.5, you may want to look at Mini vMac.
0: Yeah, and I think the thing that Tom recommended to us was that if you have software that is of the era of classic Mac, that it's black and white software, that Mini V Mac is kind of the go-to solution there. And that makes sense because I remember in the later classic Mac era that sometimes you would have a program that needed the color depth to be set to certain uh certain color depth, like either, you know, 16 colors um or even black and white, and on later hardware, or if you were emulating that later hardware, they like refused to go into that mode. Um, I remember having to do, like I think I had a copy of Original SimCity, and it required 16 colors, not 16 or more, exactly 16 colors. And like as the technology progressed, you had to actually go in and do some like weird you know, system preference hacks, basically, to even get your machine into that lower color depth so that the app would launch or you had to I don't know the Rosetta was involved is all that I remember. So yeah, MiniVMac is a good solution if you're looking at really early Mac hardware uh and want to emulate it or if you want to see like System 1 in emulation, this is this is the place to go.
1: Listener Andreas Hartl also tweeted us to uh bring the fantastic kind of like command line utility youtube-dl to our attention because I had mentioned that uh, in the case where we want to include audio from, say, a keynote in an episode, my process has been to paste its YouTube URL into one of the very many uh, shady online YouTube downloaders. And this is a very customizable, extensible command line utility that will rip a YouTube video in, like, full video or just audio or many other preferences uh from the command line and I had heard about this I want to say from maybe Casey Liss on an ATP episode or of uh, like a follow up tweet and completely forgotten about it but yes this is a very powerful tool and I will be using it in the future
0: yeah you can install it through the usual kind of command line means um, I guess you can do it directly. It's Python script, I guess. You can do it directly that way, or you can do it through Homebrew or Mac ports. And then we'll link to the GitHub page. And there's just like so many flag options for this. It's just pages and pages of double dash flags that you can add on to this to tweak it to your heart's content. So um, I can't imagine that it leaves off anything that you would want to do in terms of uh, process that you might need for downloading an entire YouTube video.
1: You can even kind of set it loose on an entire YouTube playlist. So, uh, if for archival purposes, we ever want to say, get all of the every Steve jobs video, uh, keynotes, we could pretty much just point YouTube DL at like a certain playlist and let it run for a while.
0: I hear there is a local copy of that somewhere. So
1: <laughs> nice. <laughs>
0: um, and also maybe if any of you followed the every Steve jobs link in, uh, I guess that was in that previous episode, uh, in the show notes, they were down for a while. I'm not sure if the site is up, uh, or not. Fortunately, it seems like the YouTube channel, which is kind of most important is unaffected. And one of the other great things about those YouTube videos and why they're kind of most important that I don't think I mentioned when I was talking about every Steve Jobs video is that they have basically like chapter markers, uh, where they've gone through and they've said at, All these different time codes in the video, these are the different things that they talk about in, say, a two-hour-long keynote, which is really useful because you don't have to scrub around. It's far easier to click to expand the description and then just hop to the section that you want. One other piece uh, of—I guess this doesn't directly follow on from our behind-the-show process episode. Uh, I I guess if it's follow-up for anything, it's what, episode 35, uh, HyperCard? Uh, Some HyperCard news since we last recorded, there's a new app called HyperCard Preview, which is an OS X app. Uh, And according to its GitHub page, programmed in Swift, because of course it is. Uh, This is a generation-spanning Mac app. Uh, Looks like it's actually an Xcode project, so you'll have to have Xcode installed and do a little bit of compiling yourself. So not maybe ready Uh, for mass distribution as like a bundled app. But it is a native Mac OS, OS X, whatever you want to call it, application, modern Mac application, that is a read-only application for HyperCard stacks. So if you still have some hanging around and don't have an emulator set up that you want to be able to view them in that way, you can actually just build this little app and uh, get a read-only view of any stacks that you might have laying around. Uh, so it is kind of, it's billed as a viewer app, or, you know, it says HyperCard Preview, and kind of in the same sense that the preview app that's bundled with macOS, it has a limited range of functionality in terms of what you can, what you can do with the formats that it opens. Like if you open a, animated gif in preview it shows you all the frames that's kind of like what you're going to get with this hypercard stack preview app it doesn't interpret hypertalk or run any of the scripts inside of the stack but you'll be able to see the layout and artwork and buttons on every card in the stack which is certainly better than it just being stuck as like a little binary blob that you can't do anything with so uh it'll be interesting to see where this tool goes i think it's kind of in progress. And it's another one to add to your arsenal if you're a historic Mac enthusiast like us.
1: Yeah, I uh, I compiled it and ran it on the one like kind of demo HyperCard stack I could find uh, quickly enough. And yeah, I'll just echo that. I'm very excited that this is built as kind of like the beginnings of a project. Maybe it'll graduate to a full HyperCard player, which used to be a, a real thing. And then, you know, if if I can wish upon a star. Uh, It can be the HyperCard player with like the magic code (laughs) (laughs) where it just magically turns into full HyperCard. Uh, But, you know, I'll keep my fingers crossed for that one.
0: So now let's get on to our main topic for this episode. And as is so often the case, our topic about the history of Apple is inspired by something that today's Apple has done. So as we record this, just last week, Apple... released some new products, and among them was a brand new product red iPhone, the iPhone 7 and 7 Plus, I presume. And people were commenting on how good it looked and uh, some of the features that they liked or disliked about it. But it got us thinking about uh, the bold colors that Apple has used for products over the entire course of Mac, iPod, iPhone life cycle, And we're going to run through some of those today because Apple was, of course, a pioneering company in terms of adding really bold and vibrant color to technology as opposed to sticking around in beige, ugly boxes. And of course, there are parts of Apple's product line that are more or less colorful today. And this introduction of the red iPhone was an an addition of bold color where there wasn't a whole lot of bold color previously, and that's what caught a lot of people's attention and caught our attention. So we're going to run through a whole lot of products, especially with an eye out for red and the Product Red Partnership, which Apple has been involved in for a long time. If you don't know about the Product Red Partnership or haven't heard about it endlessly on all of your modern Apple podcasts, it's a It's a charitable partnership between companies that sell products and services and an organization that funds AIDS research. And so the notion is that any of the products that are branded with the product red logo and are, naturally enough, red in color, some portion of the proceeds is donated to this fund for research and treatment. Uh, And I believe that Apple... Over the course of the Product Red program has given the most money of any company. Um, Let's see. According to Wikipedia, which is never wrong, (laughs) Apple has raised more than $65 million for Product Red since 2006, so in uh, 11 years. And
1: that's a big deal. Before we get to any of these uh, Apple-branded Product Red products, let's start with the Macintosh line. It's the main focus of our show. And certainly a lot of the Macintosh products have seen uh, some bold and some not so bold colors. The original Macintosh, as we all know, uh, was a beige computer. And this was more of like the warmer, khackier beige than some of the uh, later Macs, but still in the classic era were. So while the early, the first Macintosh was beige and some of the immediate successors like the Plus and the uh, SE were this kind of warm beige when Apple uh, partnered with Frog design, which we mentioned in our prototypes episode, uh, and adopted the snow white design language. Uh, the the cases, the accessories all kind of shifted to this platinum color, which is still kind of beige, but a little bit more of a gray beige, a cooler beige. Uh, Again, to tie it to a modern Macintosh thing, I am reading our show notes on my laptop that has been updated to 10.2.4 using Night Shift now. And I would describe the original Macintosh as a night shifted beige (laughs) (laughs) to the uh, like early 90s platinum beige.
0: And those were really the options for many, many years of the Macintosh so that that Platinum and Snow White language came around in what, like about 87 to the Mac line and also to the Apple II line, which was still going on then, like with the 2C. And that was what we knew in terms of what do you mean computers come in colors? You know, it's like uh it's like Model T Ford. Any color you want as long as it's black, you could get a <laughs> Mac in any color you want as long as it's beige. Uh there were a couple of exceptions, I guess, even before we got to the most famous colored computer that Apple ever released, the Bondi Blue iMac. And so along that way, there was, of course, the uh, PowerBooks, which were in dark shades of gray, black, bronze keyboard, that kind of thing. And the Apple, uh, the Macintosh TV, which is the Performa-based model that came in all black. But that's still in that very monochromatic kind of color palette. So you would think that we would skip all the way ahead to the iMac G3, but I always like to point out the first time that a little bit of color, besides like the Apple logo, which was present on so many of those classic Macs, the first time that there was a splash of color somewhere in the case design itself actually came in kind of the middle of the Power Mac era with the Power Mac 8600. And so this was an update to the 8000 series, 8100, 8500, 8600, and it got a case refresh. And this was one of the first Tower Macs that had the easy open case design. We talked about this a couple episodes ago, too. And there was a essentially a button that you would push that was an easy release case latch, and then the entire tower would tip open. Um, or I guess actually on those early ones, maybe only just like the side panel came off, Then it was in the the blue and white tower where the whole thing sort of magically unfolds itself. But that button that was on the top of the case and was always visible then, as long as you had the tower in a location where you could see it, was this kind of teal plastic. I wouldn't call it exactly Bondi blue because it's not nearly anywhere as vibrant as what showed up on the original iMac and might even be slightly more towards the green edge of the spectrum. Although Bondi was was more towards green, it was blueberry that really came became the the more just pure blue. But there was this colored button and it was a sign of many things to come, both in the Mac line and beyond.
1: The next immediate colorful Mac was, of course, the iMac G3, where the like top two-thirds of that beautiful translucent case were the Bondi blue plastics. And we've talked a lot about the iMac G3. We've had uh, an entire episode dedicated to it. So we will run through once more uh, the other colors that the iMac G3 came in.
0: The total of 13 colors that if you want to hear all about the woes of collecting them, go back to our iMac G3 episode with Stephen Hackett, who put them all in one room. Much to his chagrin. Yeah. (laughs) But so there was the Bondi Blue iMac and then the explosion of colors that came in the five flavors era. And not only did you get the uh, the colors, but of course you got the whimsical names that they weren't just colors, they were in fact flavors, blueberry, strawberry, grape, lime, and orange. And one of the things that Apple did to promote this was they had a, a huge ad campaign for it. And the whole notion of having multiple colors was that you were able to express your personality with your computer. It wasn't just that oh, well, computers aren't boring anymore and you get the, the one color that we offer, you now have your choice of these several colors. And the advertising campaign for this was great. I remember one of my favorite Apple ads of all time is the, the TV spot that has the, the yum flower pattern of the five flavors IMAX all dancing around on turntables in sort of a predecessor to the white room so that they all stand out and appear colored and it's got music going in the background. She Comes in Colors. So she here being the iMac, I suppose. And so I, I, I Wikipedia'd this song. I said, like, oh, it, it's called She Comes in Colors. Well, no, it's not She Comes in Colors. That song was released in 1967 by the band Love. And it turns out that this song is She's a Rainbow, which is the lyric that happens later in the ad. And that's by the Rolling Stones and was also released later in 1967. Uh, there was apparently some uh, some connection here. And, you know, it, it's a very upbeat song. Definitely would have fit with uh, Steve Jobs' musical taste. You, one of those where you wonder if like he handpicked that one. And thanks to the magic of music streaming, I decided, hey, I'm going to go stream this whole song and listen to it because you can tell in the ad it's one of those traditional Apple, like, you know, it's a 30-second spot, and they really do a tight job of editing a song into the window of their 30-second TV commercial. Like, think of the uh, the original iPod Touch commercial, which, of course, also uh, wends its way around all of the parts of that song that uh, you would not actually want to air on network <laughs> TV in prime time. Much less the rest of the album. That CSS album is uh, is something special. Um, but I listened to She's a Rainbow, and it's like a four-and-a-half-minute song, and it's like a very spare song. There's, there's the piano coming in at the beginning, and then they kind of go through exactly what happens in the ad in about... F- there's like a 10-second intro, and then what happens in the ad, and it comes to a dead stop, and then it starts again with the exact same motif. I'm like... Is Spotify broken? No, that's just the way the song is. Like, it repeats the 30-second window that's in the ad almost exactly three times, and then there's two choruses, and then it finishes. (laughs) So, like, what I thought was, like, a really intense editing job on it is actually kind of just, like, they clipped out a section. I love that that ad. I think it's really representative of the the kind of joy that they were trying to spread with the Five Flavors IMAX. And I remember when it came out, I this was maybe one of the first Apple ads that they themselves put available for download on their website. And I remember just I remember downloading just a postage stamp size QuickTime video of it. It was probably
1: like 240p. The .mov file?
0: Yep, and playing it over and over again and speeding it up and slowing it down in QuickTime Player. Uh, sim- simple
1: pleasures, I suppose. Before moving on to the rest of the iMac G3 colors and patterns, I guess it should be noted kind of like as a footnote that the uh, these five flavor iMacs existed through the kind of hardware refresh where it went from tray loading to slot loading, CD drives, and a bunch of other improvements that we covered in that episode. And one of those improvements was the removal of the shielding around the CRT. So uh, the cases kind of looked a little brighter, uh, but the colors stayed the same. That theme of colors persisting from generation to generation, but like being brightened a little bit will come up later in the episode.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then in the iMac DV era, we got Sage, Ruby, Indigo, Graphite, and Snow. I think their ruby is worth mentioning since uh, red was one of the inspirations for this episode. That's really the first Apple product that was that went to market and was sold in like a bold red color. Because strawberry, I mean, it was definitely more in the pink area of the spectrum.
1: And we would be remiss if we left out the iMacs that were more patterned than colored, the Flower Power and Blue Dalmatian color schemes. Sometimes I feel like we should leave them out. (laughs) Yeah, that's all we need to say about them. Of course, these
0: candy colors also migrated to the iBook G3 as it was the iMac to go. That was one of their marketing slogans. The iBook G3 launched with two colors to start, blueberry and tangerine, so a subset of those colors from the five flavors iMac G3, and then moved on into another range of colors, indigo, although certainly different than the iMac indigo because they were dealing in different materials. They were still with the translucent plastics on the iBook, whereas the indigo on the iMac G3 had gone to that like very highly transparent or like clear mm-hmm. uh there's no clouding of what you can you can see straight through the case and then also on the iBook G3 was graphite as one of the like prestige colors this was one of the first instances of colors having being at, like a higher tier so that happened on the iMac G3 and then was also carried over to the iBook again that difference of translucent versus very much see through and then the iBook got one color that was not present on the iMac G3. So iMac G3 had lime in the five flavors era, and they went for a very vibrant green on the iBook, but I guess they decided that it was so vibrant and so different that they couldn't just call it lime. So they decided to call it Key Lime. It's very bright. Yeah, I stumbled across, I, I was flipping through Iconic in preparation for the show just to make you know, because if there was something with a bright color, it was going to stand out to me just to make sure that I hadn't missed anything. And I was going through, going through, and it was in a section full of Power Books and they were all kind of dark colors. And then boom, key lime. <laughs> and yeah, it was just
1: completely saturated. Back on the desktop side of things, we had the Yosemite blue and white Power Mac G3 Tower, uh in our show notes it says blue berry and white but the uh the berry is crossed out it's just the blue and white tower cuz they really were identical in color but the marketing
0: name was different
1: and that form factor would continue throughout the Power Mac G4 the first Power Mac G4 kind of kept the the glossy aqua e uh product aesthetic but of course since it was the more professional uh the higher prestige it switched from blue and white to graphite. And later models of the Power Mac G4 switched their color schemes to be less of the like translucent where the shade of gray maybe still kind of reads as a color to kind of flat uh, the Quicksilver model and then the mirrored door drive model.
0: Yeah, it really forms a progression. It's almost like the blue fades because that original graphite was a little bit in that sort of slate blue kind of color then it goes to mostly white and then all to plain metal.
1: Speaking of white machines, while the, uh, the, the power, the Pro desktop is kind of losing its color saturation, uh, the iMac went through some rounds of that as well. The G3 iMac ha- came in a range of fantastic colors. The iMac G4, which was the beloved lamp uh, form factor, was a white dome and a white bezel around the floating flat screen. The iMac G5 that followed it was an all white machine on a like a, a standard metal foot and as was the first Intel iMac it followed in that form factor as well. Similarly, the iBook after its uh, <laughs> bright key lime model switched over to the dual USB form factor, the body odor iBook that I talked about in the last episode, and that as well went to uh all white with some translucency. And then for the iBook G4, uh, that was like fully opaque white plastics. Kind of a boring machine uh in appearances, but uh, a workhorse of machine nonetheless. And by the time we made it to the first Intel MacBook consumer laptop, uh that was predominantly the all white machine as well. The first Intel MacBook, of course, also came in its own prestige upgrade where it was a black matte option. That, uh, as many people found out, even if you specced a white MacBook similarly, there was still, I think, what was it, a $200, $250 premium? It was $200 difference for the black book. Yep.
0: <laughs> I think that that one was actually an exception for when Apple has set a color as a prestige model, because usually what they do, and is the thing that they did just recently with the Jet Black iPhone and the Product Red iPhone, is that they will make them a prestige model by putting them at the top end of the price range, but that's because simply the base-level internals, the actual computer bits of it, are not available. In those lower configurations and the colored case. So that's so for jet black and for the red iPhone, they start at the second tier of storage. So that's plus a hundred dollars, but you're still getting the same amount of additional storage that you would get for adding a hundred dollars to an ordinary color of iPhone. But that black MacBook was the one where it really had the just straight up color tax. (laughs) Yeah. Of course, the uh, evolution of the laptop and desktop lines that we know now, the, the iMac, the MacBook, the MacBook Pro, as Apple phased out plastics as the material of choice, of course, we got aluminum and glass. And so our default colors have been for a long time. This very clean brushed aluminum and black is the primary color palette of all of the Macs that we know today. Although, of course, we've had the introduction of a few new colors borrowed over from the evolution of the iPhone line. So now our lineup of standard colors for Macs today are your silver, space gray, gold, and rose gold on certain models. So it's fairly easy to uh, run through all of the possible colors of Mac that have happened in the past, especially when it's easy to just quickly run over the uh the iMac G3 and go, yep, 13 of those. But the one place that Apple has introduced the most color in their products throughout the years is definitely in the iPod line. So we're going to talk a lot about different colors of iPods here, some of which are definitely still available today. And the iPod starts off with a history that was very much like the Mac, where it comes in one color. And this totally makes sense. I mean, if you're thinking about it in terms of designing a product, making sure that it appeals to the market, having to actually produce it, you're only going to want to produce one model to start with if you're not envisioning it as like a fashion product. And of course, when the iPod first came out, Apple was not in the fashion business even kind of tangentially. They were a computer company and a computer company that was only just becoming a consumer electronics company. But with the huge success of the iPod, it gave Apple opportunities to start branching out. And of course, the first thing that it led to was the branching out of the iPod product line from just a single device, 1,000 songs in your pocket, to the then smaller second and third generation players with more storage capacity. But 2004 brought the addition of the iPod Mini. And it also brought along the first multicolored range of iPods. So launched in January of 2004, the first generation iPod Mini had front faces that were in pink, green, blue, silver, and gold. A pretty uh, standard color palette it, it really kind of evokes the uh, the color choices that were made on the IMAX just a few
1: years previous. The iPod Mini got a second generation revision a year later, February of 2005 and the gold color or finish I guess, did not survive to this generation. but the other four colors did. However, they were kind of brightened like I mentioned before. Um, so a brighter pink, green and blue and the same silver. Uh, the only other color note for this generation is that the the label, the text label, and the icon labels on the iPod Mini's click wheel gained the model's color in the second generation. I think that was often one of the ways that, uh, like, the K base article would say, like, how do you know which generation of iPod Mini do you have? Is the the text in the same color? Yeah. Do you have silver? I guess you got to look on the back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's another instance of like the increased popularity
0: and increased production giving them the ability to do that where with the first generation, okay, we you know, what's the most complex part of the iPod Mini? Well, the click wheel. It's like it's the moving piece and if you can produce just one of those or just have one process pr- for producing those, that's fine. It doesn't matter that it has gray labels on it, but you get to the point where you're producing five times as many because the product is really taken off. All right, fine. We can afford to set up, you know, five separate lines uh or to color them separately at the end of the process. So it totally makes sense. It's it's another one of those little Apple refinements like we've talked about in the early days of the iMac, like with the slot loading, where it's like, this is what th- this is what they drew up for the first generation. And then the operational reality of actually producing the product probably made them have to you know, compromise on just a couple small pieces of the de- design, and then it finally came together. So the iPod Mini set the expectation that there would be a range of iPods that came in multiple colors, again giving you that ability to personalize your product and to have an Apple product that maybe said something more about you or your particular tastes. But the standard flagship iPod was still pretty much just selling in the single color, white, metallic, until later in 2004, Apple came out with one of their special edition products. And uh, just like the new iPhone is technically, if you look at the name, special edition and product red, it's like double special. But the product that was released in 2004 was, of course, the U2 special edition iPod, beginning their long and sometimes painful public relationship with you 2 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, though, this is an incredibly good-looking iPod product. So the entire front body of the iPod is black, and the click wheel is red, which gives for a really high-contrast look. And A lot of people have been criticizing the new red iPhone because it has a white front face and they don't like the white and red combination. They wish that it had the black and red combination, just like Apple put together for the special edition iPod back in 2004. And I can see why. I mean, it really is a striking piece of design. And it's one of the very few times that Apple has put out a product that has two bold colors in contrast next to each other. Because if you think even to, you know, their other brightest products like the IMAX, the accent color was always white. And so it was a single bold color. And yes, black is not exactly a color either. We can get into philosophical debates about color. But the amount of contrast that is present is so high there and is something that people are still looking for in an Apple product because apparently the the white and red combination
1: doesn't quite have that same punch for some people. As far as full-sized click wheel iPods go, the U2 special edition was the only one that had like the the pop of color with the red click wheel and uh, that continued into the color screened. Uh, kind of fourth generation slash iPod photo, as well as the fifth generation uh, video iPod. And then after that, the full-sized click wheel iPods did have uh, two different colors, (laughs) uh, just like Ed was saying, the kind of silver and uh, like close to black matte uh, anodized aluminum of the iPod Classic until it was discontinued way after the time had come (laughs) to discontinue it. Was it two, 2014? Pretty recently. Yeah. So let's move on to another iPod line, and this will be the iPod Shuffle. Similar to the uh, base iPod, the first generation was only available in white, that little stick of gum form factor in uh, white plastic. The second generation came out in January of 2006, and this was uh, dramatically smaller and had the aluminum case which was initially only available in silver. But then in the fall of that year at their music event, they introduced colors, blue, pink, green, and orange. And these were kind of like nice, bright, hearkening back to the iMac, the G3 iMac colors. This generation of iPod Shuffle went through a couple color changes. The hardware and the internals didn't change, but every once in a while, Apple felt the need to refresh the iPod shuffle line just to keep it interesting. So not too long after introducing those initial colors in January of 2007, they refreshed them to be blue, green, red, and purple, kind of darker, less, uh, less bright, um, colors. And then at the music event that year, <laughs> they refreshed them again to get kind of, I don't even know how you would describe these not pastelly in that they're like washed out, but, More of the like delicate colors, I guess. Less saturated colors. Yeah, that's good. And specifically turquoise, lavender, mint green, and the first appearance of a product red iPod. Yeah, the the color changes that were going
0: on here is interesting to see how they do and don't match up with the rest of the line because there were colors going on in the iPod Nano as well, which of course replaced the Mini, famously replaced the Mini. The best the best iPod and we're killing it. <laughs> um, so these two lines were in existence next to each other, both in multiple colors and kind of trading colors back and forth. And I think that this, uh, like you said, more pastel, uh, less saturated batch of colors was going back and forth between what was going on in the Nano line as well. Those, those colors and, of course, the nano form factor that was happening at that time were not extremely popular, so with another refresh did bring them back to the more saturated, more traditional lineup of colors. Then they brought out the third-generation shuffle in March of 2009, bringing a whole new industrial design to it, so back to square one on the colors, just silver and black, and then in fall of 2009 at the music event, they did a refresh of the third generation and added in blue, green, and pink. And the most elusive iPod of them all, perhaps even more so than the U2 Special Edition, the stainless steel iPod Shuffle, which is a like shiny like mirror finish uh, on the iPod Shuffle itself. And those as I understand it, are, like, still pretty hot collector's items. Like, not a whole lot of them were produced, and they still run, like, even, like, just search for them, and an eBay listing came up for, like, a a pretty beat-up one for, like, almost $80. I think that's interesting, too, because that particular color or lack of color, that finish on the shuffle was not I think, marketed as one of the like prestige colors. But it's interesting that after the fact, just because of the way in which it was sold and people's, I don't know, love of shiny things, uh, that it has become a collector's favorite.
1: I remember that it truly was stainless steel as opposed to the aluminum case, because I think in the tech specs, it weighed noticeably more. Yeah. Of course, the third generation buttonless iPod Shuffle is not the final generation of the iPod Shuffle. The fourth generation, which went back to the kind of faux click wheel buttons on the face of the device, was released in fall 2010 at the music event, the kind of fall music event. Um, I want to point out that Steve Jobs himself introduced this iPod Shuffle and did Uh, mentioned that like some of our customers didn't appreciate the fact that the previous generation had to be operated completely through the clicker on your earbud cords. So we're bringing back the buttons, bring back what the people want. Steve Jobs introduced this iPod Shuffle, which except for some color refreshes is still on sale today. It also like another thing about it that has not been updated is it's pack in earbuds are not actually ear pods. They're the old like second generation of White Apple earbuds.
0: So, continuing to think about the supply chain and how all of these different colors and products are being produced, the question here is Is there a factory somewhere still making those earbuds? Or did they just have a warehouse full of them that they're still just bundling with the
1: iPods? I I don't know. Like, yeah, you think about economies of scale, it probably costs more to keep some, like the molds and everything running. On these old earbuds.
0: They must literally just be like back stock.
1: To address the iPod Shuffle Fourth Generation's colors, because that is the focus of this episode, its initial release was in silver, green, blue, orange, and pink, kind of the bright candy colors. Two years later, at the fall event in 2012, the uh, colors were refreshed to be silver, black, or like slate, green, blue, pink, yellow, and purple, kind of widening the range giving you two of the monochromatic colors and a couple more of the brighter ones. Finally, in the summer of 2015, it was refreshed again to kind of bring it up to the like the, the modern hardware color lines, uh, specifically in line with the other major iPod lines that survive today, which we'll get to in just a moment. Space gray, gold, silver, those standards, a kind of a hot pink, uh, a nice like bold blue and a product red.
0: Yeah, I, I, if you had asked me, like, without going to Apple.com, does, has Apple ever sold a Space Gray product that wasn't an iOS device or a Mac, I would have told you
1: no. And here it is. <laughs> and I think the thing is, they might be the same finish, but just before iOS devices were calling that Space Gray, uh, iPod devices were calling it Slate, I think, and they just decided to standardize the marketing name of this dark gray shade of aluminum.
0: Actually, if you look at the marketing names for some of the iPod Touch models, when they started to diversify into colors, they had ones that were listed as, quote, black and slate, referring to both the f- the front and back of the device, and white and silver, which is interesting that they specified that there, and now as the iPhone line is diversifying and gaining colors, and people really care what the front of their phone is, whether it's black or white, that they don't list that. They, they just list the back color. They, well, it's it's the red one, and and then you turn it over and it's white and people are angry. Um, so maybe they should market that as product red and white. <laughs> While the uh, Shuffle line was producing many, many colors, so was the iPod Nano. With the second generation of iPod Nano, they again went to a wide spread of colors. Silver, green, blue, pink, black, and red. Although this was not a product red color. This was before the official partnership began. But it was a premium model again. So Apple recognized... I don't know if the the deal was kind of in the works, or if they just saw that red was a color that they thought would have more prestige or more more market appeal. Because in that generation of iPod Nano, you could get um, you could get all of the basic colors in the basic model, which was two gigabytes of storage. Then, if you went up to four gigabytes, you could get red or black. And if you wanted an eight gigabyte model, you were looking only at red.
1: The third generation iPod Nano, uh, aside from having the the kind of like odd duck form factor,
0: I'll still call it the fatty Nano. I will forever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it also had the same colors as uh, kind of like one of those off cycles of the second generation iPod Shuffle, uh, silver blue, red, green, and black. And again, these are like what what would you say like less saturated uh well they're kind of like minty colors.
0: I was going to say these are these are the types of colors that you will find on a tube of toothpaste. And that is I think that the fact that that and the the squat form factor design rolled out at the same time is is why this generation of the iPod Nano. I mean, yeah, there are people who... It's their favorite. I mean, I saw one being used on an airplane within the past year, (laughs) um, which was, like, across the aisle from me. I was like, what? Um, So there are people who loved this design and these colors, but for the most part, they were not particularly popular. There was, however, should point out, a red model in there, although I think that of all of the red products that Apple has produced, this one kind of... It's just a different hue. It's almost like that ruby color that was on the iMac.
1: Like a little darker?
0: Yeah, a little bit more of like a raspberry type of color, uh, if that describes it adequately. (laughs) Um, So this was a totally different palette than had been seen previously in Apple products, and one that proved to not be particularly well-received.
1: Those Nanos were introduced and released at the fall music event in 2007. Uh, And something that I completely forgot happened just a couple months later in January, 2008, they added a new color option to the line pink just in time for Valentine's day. I don't, I don't know if there are any other uh, examples of that where it's like, well, we won't replace colors. We'll just add a new one to the line. That's very obviously like themed or timed.
0: (laughs) Right. Whereas like, With the red iPhone now, people are saying, well, they're just doing it in the spring. It's off cycle because, you know, you want to just, you know, give a a little kick to iPhone sales for people who want a new phone and they want to see something that is new, whether they are paying attention to the internals of it or not. They go, oh, this is a new iPhone. It just came out. So it feels new and fresh. But yeah, like a holiday promotion that that's
1: (laughs) that's something else. The next generation of the iPod Nano returned to a kind of uh, tall rectangle form factor. The fourth generation was introduced and released in the fall music event of 2008, and it went back to a broad range of bright candy colors. Of course, uh, silver and black, but also purple, blue, green, yellow, orange, pink, and a product red. And this was the one that I think was
0: actually marketed on Apple.com as like a rainbow they they organized them with with the silver and black down at one end and then the full rainbow spectrum uh, across the page being like we've we've got every color that you could possibly imagine yeah that's the most diverse color lineup that apple had ever introduced on a single product and maybe uh has ever had since except for things like you know cases and accessories Right? Because there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different colors that were available simultaneously of the fourth
1: generation Nano. The fifth generation Nano had a pretty similar form factor. The screen got a little taller and it added a camera and microphone on the back. Um, it also retained the same broad color range, except the finish on the aluminum was like polished. It wasn't actually stainless steel like the ipod shuffle we discussed earlier so all the colors appeared brighter certainly shinier and like more reflective uh, but i think they came off like both in product photography and in real life just kind of more lively more reflective the light caught them uh a little more
0: The ipod nano of course went through all kinds of different shape shifting across its many generations and the sixth generation was certainly the uh odd one out even odder than the fatty nano because it was the square nano that was all touchscreen on the front. And many people in the pre Apple watch era actually got like big chunky wristbands and wore these almost as watches. I think there were even kind of watch face options for it. You would have to obviously like turn it on. It didn't have an accelerometer like to raise when you raise your wrist. Uh, But These also came in a variety of colors, but the thing was that because the entire front face was the screen and many people were placing the back of the product up against their skin, you couldn't really see much of them. So if you look at product shots, there's these just kind of like very thin strips of color down the side. It almost seems a little bit wasted. Yeah. Then the seventh generation iPod Nano came around and turned the form factor to something more familiar at least in terms of the ipod lineup although not the nano itself because the ipod nano looks like kind of a very tiny ipod touch it even has a home button it has weird round ios 6 icons still (laughs) and it came in that kind of standard rainbow range of colors until it was refreshed in the summer of 2015 with new colors, space gray, gold, silver. So those are your kind of traditional iOS iPhone colors, but keeping some uh, vibrant colors with hot pink, blue, and a product red version.
1: The final iPod line that uh, warrants mentioned here is, of course, the iPod Touch. And the first few generations of iPod Touch were... uh, Black fronts, just as the same with the iPhone, eventually uh, white fronts. And then finally, with the fifth generation of iPod Touch at the fall event in 2012, they got their own line of colors. Uh, Like Ed mentioned earlier, black and slate, signifying the front face and the rear aluminum case, white and silver. And then for the uh, final four colors, a white front and either pink, yellow, blue, or product red aluminum backs. And then to keep the iPod Touch in line with the other surviving iPod lines in summer of 2015, it got the same uh, color updates along with its significant hardware updates to the same space gray, gold, silver, hot pink, blue, and product red.
0: Yeah, the current line of iPod Touch, it looks a lot like either what you would expect from the bare metal of a current iPhone or kind of the colors that you would expect in like a silicone case the first range of colors that was on that fifth generation i think uh i think you might have deleted it out of the outline that we are going from here this was maybe where where we wrote salmon question mark because that what was marketed as pink coming off of the pink in those rainbow nanos you might have noticed that slight change in nomenclature from pink to hot pink in the seventh generation, seventh generation refresh, they did that because they were selling this other product that was also called pink, that was a completely different color and not a pleasing pink. I think that, you know, even like rose gold is a prettier pink, just straight up pink than these iPod touches were. Uh, it was, it, it, it it would have felt at home with that, uh, that one line of the third-generation Nanos that everyone kind of thought like, oh, these colors are just a little bit
1: off. The salmon will make a comeback uh, in this next section. We've covered Macintosh colors. We've covered iPod colors. Obviously, Apple's current iOS line uh, has been offered in colors that we've basically covered, the, the kind of standard aluminum metal finishes. So what we're going to do now is cover... Uh, maybe like one-off pieces of Apple hardware and one specific iPhone line that actually did come in true colors.
0: Well, I think one of my favorites that has to get mentioned anytime that we talk about colorful Apple cases, and like I mentioned, Apple doesn't typically go for a multi-colored case, but there's that one that we discovered in the iconic book and is one of my all-time favorites, the special edition LPGA. Yes, like like women's golf. Uh, It was a promotional model of, I believe it was the PowerBook 190. And the case is primarily blue, but also has like red and yellow accents, all bold primary colors, uh, multiple colors across the entire case. And only a very limited production run of those was made. It was never sold as a commercial product, but was Apple's most colorful Macintosh for many, many years.
1: Another portable that came in one very specific color and a couple other prototype colors was the E-Mate. We've discussed the E-Mate in our recent Newton episodes. It came in a very nice translucent forest green. Um, And then as we discussed in the follow-up from our previous episode, there are some elusive E-Mate prototype models floating around out there in a couple of different colors. There are two that are pink and purple that we linked to in our previous episode. Uh, episode. And there's also the kind of common thing around like quote unquote lost Apple prototypes where the entire case is clear. And there's a a cool flicker gallery of a clear emate that retained its uh, opaque green keyboard. And uh, like I just said, there are a couple other Apple models floating around out there where uh, the case has been replaced with all clear plastic. But uh, this emate is a cool example, if only for that, uh, glaringly obvious colored keyboard.
0: I think there was also a red prototype going to our favorite color for this particular episode. Yeah. Another incredible red Apple product that we would have to mention in this episode is the one-off red Mac Pro in the current, current in quotation marks, trash can form factor in not just red, but like hot rod reflective chrome red so this was a literally one-off machine that was created by johnny ivan mark Newsom at apple and donated to the product red auction and so many companies donated these unique products to be sold at the auction all for charity of course and this particular machine it was it was Pretty souped up, I think, for the Mac Pro. It was not like a base model; it was uh, one of the higher higher end models, and so it would have, but for the case, I think, retailed for you know in the five thousand dollar range. And as with all auctions of this sort, the auction house predicts. The, the range that they think that the particular item will sell in. And this was pegged at going somewhere between forty and $60,000. So that would have been like a 10x markup on the computer itself for the novelty and for, of course, the goodwill of donating to charity. Then some Apple fans went nuts. <laughs> and this particular Mac Pro is, I I, I think... It has to be the like most expensive Mac of all time. It has to be. It sold at auction for nine hundred seventy seven thousand dollars, almost a million dollars. Unreal. Although I suppose that yeah, the person who bought that machine can be can rest assured that they still have an up to date current Mac. <laughs> <laughs> but this was you know this was a Johnny Ive creation. It looks really good. I I am certain that if they made products that if, if they made iPhones with this finish, even if it scratched, that people would pay like a hundred dollar just color tax for it. Like it, it's a very, very striking looking product. And I kind of think of it as the like first edition product because this was actually around the time of the just before the watch release. And so this is a one-off prestige fashion product that was expected to fetch a premium far beyond what the technological components of the machine were worth just for its style and its rarity.
1: We'll link to a gallery of photos of this that comes from Apple Insider in our show notes. And I just want to point out a couple things about this gallery. <laughs> a little Easter egg in here. <laughs> yeah. Um Actually, before I do, uh, there was another Apple product, a Johnny Ive design at this auction that kind of counts as a color, uh, a set of rose gold ear pods. Oh, yeah. And they they were in the
0: tens of thousands of dollars range for, yikes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) The red Mac Pro is by far the more beautiful machine. But yeah, some fun things to look out for in this gallery of photos. I don't know if there's a product red Stormtrooper. That was part of the auction or if there's just a stormtrooper in the gallery for some reason. But you can see in the reflection of the Mac Pro in a couple of these photos, a very clear stormtrooper helmet. So that's just a fun thing to look out for.
0: I mean, I guess it must have been one of the actual movie props that was being auctioned off also also for charity. Um, Weren't there like imperial troops that
1: actually did wear red? Yeah, like the Emperor's Guard. Yeah, they should have used one of those. And then uh, there's a another photo that kind of steps back from the Mac Pro on display and also shows the little information card next to it. And this has a fun cartoony line drawing of a bust of Johnny Ive and a bust of Mark Newsom. And I wonder if they drew their respective likenesses because uh, Johnny's is like nice and sparse and it does look like him, uh, the kind of like the look he has when he's narrating a product video from the white room. And then Mark's is uh, wearing sunglasses and has uh, a beard. So it's like a little more busy.
0: My guess is those are both Johnny sketches, but I would love to hear confirmation on that.
1: Moving on to uh, another Apple product that came in colors. The one iPhone, again, that I think we can truly say before the release of the product red iPhone 7 series that came in, colors that actually had you know hue and saturation was the iPhone five C. And uh this had the Unapologetically plastic. Exactly. I was just gonna say that. The unapologetically plastic back and I think uh consistently black front. Yep. The sides and the back were kind of a, a single piece of plastic shell that came in a couple colors, including white, a kind of a brighter blue, pink Green and a kind of washed out yellow, and then here's where in the notes we have salmon question mark, but it was again that kind of off pink.
0: Yeah, actually, one of my coworkers is using a pink iPhone 5C right now. Like I saw one today. Oh my gosh! And uh, it's actually pretty pretty high saturation. It's it's not anywhere near those other kind of sickly pinks. It's it's not the color of an adhes folder. <laughs> One of the other things that I think is worth pointing out with the iPhone 5C, although it was not part of the case itself, is that this is one of the few times that Apple encouraged people to go two-tone with one of their products. So it's not part of the phone body. uh, It's just, you know, the color and black. But they also simultaneously came out with the silicone cases for the phone that had those circular cutouts on the back, which
1: looked kind of, he looked like, made it look like a Connect 4 board. <laughs> yeah. And people even released apps. Uh, so you could play Connect 4 by putting the case for the iPhone 5C a- across the front. Really? Yeah. I'm going to see if I can find a link for this for the show notes.
0: That's incredible. Um, but that was another case of, ha, case, get <laughs> it? Uh, that was another instance of Apple actually encouraging people to have like multiple colors and high contrast showing up on their phones. Again, like a question of whether that was particularly successful. I don't know that that was necessarily the fault of the cases or just the general lack of popularity of the 5C. And one final thing, this is also a little bit of news and uh, something that comes up frequently when people talk about the various colors that Apple is producing on their products there is a company called Colorware which deals with Apple products and products from a wide range of other vendors and their whole thing is that they will take brand new products, deconstruct them, paint them custom colors, put them back together and then sell them to you as essentially new. And they just came out with one since we recorded our last episode that's the iPhone 7 Plus Retro. Like this would have gone in follow up if it didn't fit perfectly for the topic of the show and They've done this before with, I think, earlier iPhone models and Macs and all kinds of Apple products, but the idea here is to take Snow White design language and put that onto the body of an iPhone 7 Plus. Not as a skin, not as a case, although I would be happy with a skin or a case given the price because the colorware markup for just about any product that they put out that is one of these custom paint jobs is about 100%. So this iPhone 7 Plus, I think it starts at like 1899 US, it which is just an incredible, ungodly amount to pay for a phone that you know is only going to last you two, maybe three years. But it's there, and it looks really, really good. And yeah, I would happily pay $30 for a good knockoff case of this. Yeah but they also do like bold single colors. So if that's your thing, like I was looking at it, some of the lower ticket items were ones I would maybe like consider. Um, Like the cases on all my iOS devices are the, I think it's the like ocean blue color that Apple has. Of course, there's a whole wide range of uh, Apple products that are accessories that come in colors and have all of the names that you would expect, like in, you know, in the paint section of your local home depot, <laughs> uh, like ocean blue. And, uh, they came out with a whole bunch of new ones, like Car- Car- Carmelia and it's a shade of red or something. I don't know. And so one of the products that I would maybe, maybe consider paying color where it's hundred percent markup on is they'll take a magic keyboard and we'll do it in like solid color, which actually looks pretty slick. Um, so I would go with like the blue to match all of my iOS devices, but that would still be $200 out of my pocket. So not not actually going for that, but it's uh, it's a little bit more plausible than a $2,000 phone.
1: They will also color your AirPods, um, which I think has some appeal. If you don't want the, uh, the kind of like white stalks hanging out, you can go with a cool matte black maybe to match your phone. And they'll also color the case. But yeah, similarly, it's not just the case that uh, there's a high markup on these, but AirPods are still just to get them straight from Apple. You're still looking at what, like four to six weeks of ship time and Colorware I think tax on another four weeks or so. If even if you send them in uh, your already purchased AirPods to say nothing of having them buy a pair of AirPods for you whenever they can color them and send them to you. I bet they're going to come out with like W2 chip AirPods at that point.
0: Yeah, the, the the whole thing with Colorware's model is, of course, they have to literally buy the products from Apple essentially at retail uh, and then do their customizations. So in one respect, it's a lot easier to just count on the fact that Apple has a long history of producing nice colored products and wait for the time that the one that you want comes along and... uh And jump on it. Maybe that means that uh, a red iPhone is on your way shortly.
1: And I think that's a good way to end this episode on colors. There are options out there if you want to take colors into your own hands. But yeah, Apple has a long history of putting out its products and often its most popular products in a wide range of sometimes but not always appealing colors. We didn't even talk about watch bands, but that's not really this show. (laughs) So, yeah, if there's anything, whether it is a certain Apple Watch and band combo or a previous product that we either didn't mention entirely or didn't give enough attention to, please let us know. Uh, You can always get uh, in touch with us through our website, simplebeep.com. You can also find these show notes for this and all of our previous episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also find us on
0: Twitter. The show is at simple underscore beep, and we are individually on Twitter. I'm at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y.
1: And I'm at b s u t o.
0: Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.